Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. $1.6 trillion. That's how much student loan debt Americans, more than 40 million Americans, have today. Are you one of them? Daniel sent us this tweet. I'm a first-generation college graduate and teacher. I owe a pretty good amount from undergrad. For grad school, it's either loans or cash payments. Really hoping the Biden administration can help out. Today, where we live, we talk about college loans as policymakers from President Biden on down debate whether some federal student debt should be canceled. Is that possible? And who would it benefit the most? We'll talk about that coming up and hear from Connecticut college students, too. First joining us on Zoom is Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. She's the author of several books, including a new one coming out in May, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, A Survival Guide. Michelle, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or you can share a comment on our Facebook page and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Michelle, I mentioned that more than 40 million Americans have student loan debt today. So who are these people I'm talking about and how common is it to have this debt in our country? So about, I think around 60 so percent of uh, students have student loan debt. Uh, the average is about 30,000. Now, you know, with averages, some have more, some have less. And so often we hear the stories of people who have more, you know, 50, 60, 70, even six figures for undergraduate degree. And that does not necessarily mean people who are trying to be, say, a doctor or a lawyer. A lot of that debt is also people who've gone back for advanced degrees, like their master's degree, because they want to try to earn more income and move themselves up the economic ladder. And so, you know, it's very, I don't have to tell anybody how expensive it is to go to college between tuition and fees and room and board and books. Um, And so many people find themselves in a situation where they just can't afford it by money that they um, possibly have saved or not saved. We heard from Daisy on Twitter. She has a PhD, Michelle, and she writes, I'm 37 and I'm a lifetime away from paying her student loans off. That's a hard pill to swallow because, again, people want to go and get higher education and advanced degrees. But to think that you might be saddled with this debt for the rest of your life, that's, that's difficult when you think about all the other costs that you'll have to shoulder. That's correct. I mean, when you've got a substantial amount of student loans uh, coming out of your paycheck, uh, studies show it delays. People delay getting married. They delay buying a home. And most importantly, they delay saving for their retirement. And we know there's a looming retirement crisis. Um, And then if you've got student loan debt, it makes it difficult for you to start saving for your own children to go to college. And so it's just snowballs into the rest of your life. Um, it, and it's, it, it's a really big weight for a lot of people. 
I saw a stat that two-thirds of the people in our country that hold student loan debt are women, and eight out of ten of them are black borrowers, Michelle. Yeah, you know, um, we know that for many people to get a better job or get a job, you have to have a college degree. But we also know because of economic inequality and systemic racism that African-Americans and minorities and general Latinos have made less because of the system. And so there's less family wealth that, that would help them go to school and miser left wealth. Again, because of systemic uh, uh, racism, you weren't. I mean, many households have money because they were homeowners, and maybe they sold the house, or they've got equity they could pull from it to elevate themselves and their children. That's not the same. That's not the case uh, for many minorities, and so you're already starting behind. You can't. There's not a lot of family wealth. There's less income. We still earn less than whites, even when we have the same education and qualifications. And so that is less for you to save. So that means your children borrow more to go to college. You're hearing Michelle Singletary here on Where We Live. She's a personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. As we talk about student loan debt, there's a lot of discussion from Washington, again, about whether some of this debt should be canceled or forgiven. We're going to talk about that uh, coming up. So when we think about all the options for people, Michelle, for people who have to, for whatever reason, take out loans to pay for school, what are the options for them to pay it off and do so where it's not going to be so debilitating for them? Well, for many people, they qualify for income-based repayment plans. And so if you're struggling, you should definitely be in one of those plans. Basically, your payments are based on your family size and what you're making and what are the, uh, your disposable income. So what do you have left after your essential bills? And the, the payments are supposed to be more affordable for families. That's one way. If you can qualify for public service forgiveness, where you work for a nonprofit or a public service company, you can get your loans forgiven. So those are some ways. Um, and, and, and I hate to say this because people like, oh, it's easy for her to say, but you know, you've got to have a different lifestyle, right? You can't be doing a lot of things that maybe other people are doing, take vacations and, and maybe even delaying homeownership um, so that you can get a handle on the student loan debt. That's what I recommend people. If they ask me, oh, it's the time to buy a house. One of the first questions I ask is, do you have student loan debt? Do you have debt? And if they say yes, I say you should wait because for many people, it could be like having two mortgages in a way. The student loan debt, which is you know, 50, 60, 70, six figures, and then a home mortgage. So you've got to pace yourself. And that may mean that you're going to delay some things in your life so that you can get this debt off of your books. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is around the time where uh, parents are helping students uh, fill out uh, FAFSA applications or thinking about, you know, particular loans they may have to take uh, to help their children continue on uh, with their education. What advice do you have for parents right now? They're not going to like what I have to say. <laughs> Let me just say it. Give it to us. Like, hey, I'm just going to give it to you straight. I 
think that you need to sit down with your young person and look at what you have and make your decision based on how much money you have and what you can afford. Do not basically give them a blank check. So you have to say, these are the schools we can afford. And it may, it's probably not going to be out of state. It's not going to be that brand name uh, school that you want to go to. If we don't have enough money, you're going to have to commute or go to community college for two years and then transfer the four-year university. You know, to give an 18-year-old person or a 19-year-old person saying, hey, baby, go wherever you want, we'll figure out how to pay for it, is irresponsible for parents. And I know there's some already probably, you know, <laughs> penning uh, emails to me right now, but I'm serious about this. This is the time of year that people are gonna try to be deciding where to go. And I get it, your kid did what they were supposed to do, they got good grades, you want them to go where they want to go because, you know, they're like, mommy, this is where I need to go. And you've got to say no, because if you're facing decades of debt for that decision, it's just not something that you should do. Uh, and I'm not telling you anything that I didn't do myself, my husband and I. We have three children. We've put them through college. One of the, uh, all three of them, no debt. But what we said was we have enough for state school. Uh, if you don't get free money, you can apply wherever you want. But if you don't get enough money to go, free money to match with the money we say, you're going to the state school. It's as simple as that. You have no decision about that because you have no money. I think people need to hear that, uh, Michelle. It, it helps. Uh, but again, it's like you mentioned, there's this belief that, you know, you want your to fulfill every of dream of your child. And so if it's that dream school, you want to make it happen. But having to deal with the consequences of paying that off for years. And we all know there's no guarantee that a particular job is going to be waiting for your child right when they graduate. And that becomes an increasing burden on parents when they're thinking about retiring and, and other uh, things that are happening in their lives. That's exactly right. I mean, you got to be the parent in this situation. And this is the, the, the analogy I give to everybody. <clears throat> now, she's not the right word, but, you know, I work at the Washington Post. I went to public, uh, Baltimore Public Schools, did the best I could, great teachers, but, you know, it's a challenge system. I went to my state school. I got to the Washington Post at the same time as one of my colleagues, brilliant guy, love him to death, who went to Harvard. But guess where we both worked? the Washington Post. And if anybody, if you're listening and you think about your workplace, people got there having gone to all different kinds of colleges and all different kinds of ways. And where do you all work? And people like, oh, well, you make all these contacts. Not necessarily so. Um, the Gallup's, uh, uh, you know, Gallup does the surveys, looked at uh, graduates and they asked them like, how did you get your job? Or did you have all these contacts? And most of them didn't get their jobs because of these college contacts that you think your kids are going to get. Um, and so you've got to know that, you know, get rid of all these myths about going to a certain college will get you some. Now, if you want to work at the top law firm in New York, okay, they probably do just recruit from the Ivy Leagues, but not everybody's going to work at that one law firm. And you know what? Even everybody's not going to be president of the United States. You look at, you say, oh, you know, they all went to Ivy Leagues. Not true either. Um, and when you also look at some of the top CEOs, most of them did not go to a brand name school. They went to state schools um, or less known schools. So um, just stop telling yourself all these lies that you've got to spend all this money because it's going to open more doors for your kids. That's not necessarily true. 
Michelle Singletary is here with us on Where We Live, personal finance columnist for the Washington Post as we talk about student loan debt. Again, $1.6 trillion of debt held by more than 40 million Americans. Are you one of them? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Ratasha is calling in. Ratasha, tell us a little bit about yourself and about the debt that you're holding. Hi, uh, so my name is Natasha Smith. I live in New Haven. I have $105,000 in student loan debt. So I I went to a HBCU, private HBCU, and it was $23,000 a year. I So with the addition of just, I had two options My when I was a younger to go to college or go to the Army, and I chose the former. I wish I would have known more. It's like they talk, they skate over taking out loans. They don't go, they don't really hone into how it's going to affect you when I'm, you're 30, I'm 32 now, 32 now. And, you know, hoping to get, you know, things like houses and, you know, clean up your credit so you can, you know, buy bigger purchases and things like that. So that's where I've landed. It was just a, a, uh, many reasons why I've landed here. Um, the system is broken. I think there's just a miseducation around student loan debt, especially for us millennials. So stay with us, Ratasha, because you, you brought up a point about how they skate over student loans. So talk a little more uh, about that, Ratasha. I'm thinking about uh, when I took out loans, you know, the fact that once you have to start paying them after college, how, uh, you know, paying the minimum is not the best way to go because you're just paying the interest. You're not hitting that principle. Is that something that you struggled with as well and being able to pay more than the minimum because you have all these other, uh, you know, life bills and whatnot to get through as well? So my, for the first couple of years, I was more so forbearance. I mean, after, you know, after, it took me a little longer to finish school. So I have that added into the, the final balance. I wouldn't, I didn't get a real I don't want to say a real job. I didn't get a job that needed a college degree until 2016. So that's um, what we're in 2021 now. So I wasn't able to actually start making real payments. Well, I would say pay on these specific payments on my student loans. It was forbearance, forbearance, forbearance. And then when I did start making payments on my student loans, it, you say minimum, I actually consolidated. I, I forgot exactly why I had to consolidate. Or I know it was on my credit. It made it look better when it said, oh, everything was paid. And then I consolidated and I was only paying $100 a month prior to the moratorium um, the Trump administration put on, put in and Biden just recently extended. So $100 a month for 105 k doesn't really do anything. But I never did. Uh, if, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think I've ever been in default. Mm -hmm. I did avoid default. <laughs> well, that's good. Well, Mich Michelle, oh, I wanted you to weigh in. So Ratasha talked about forbearance. So that is an option that you can push off uh, having to pay while you're still looking for work. Explain that process. 
So what happens is that lots of students, when they graduate, they're not making a lot. And so they can't handle the payments or they don't think they can. And so they either get a deferral of forbearance and, and one, the difference is one, the interest is paid for it. Like a lot of kids get uh, in-school deferral. So while you're in school, um, the government is paying the interest on your loan. So it doesn't rack up. Forbearance is that you're, you get a break from it, but you still have to pay the interest. And, the, and what she's talking about, which often happens, is that you don't realize is that all that interest is getting tacked onto the loan and then you're paying interest on that interest and that's how that balance grows so much um uh, and so i would encourage people even when you have an income base for paying once you get to the position where you can pay more you should pay more so that you can begin to really dig yourself out now the good thing I guess, um, is that under these plans, after either 20 or 25 years, the loan is forgiven. Um, but there is a tax bomb at the end of that. So all that money that is forgiven, then you owe it a tax on that forgiven money. It's not as much as you would have had to pay. So, you know, it's it's a trade-off for the loan forgiveness. Um, but I talk to lots of students who are still in um, forbearance um, and they don't realize how that money is just piling up. I mean, they might have owed 30 and then they look up and now it's 60 or 70 because they put off paying that so long, even when they really can. I mean, I, I would say, uh, Natasha, I, I don't know if she's still on the line, but you yes. can definitely have paid more than $100 a month, right? Yes, I, I could now. I know at the time I was trying to return to school or something of that nature. Um, but now they're on um, they're on hold, so that's actually been helpful, and it's been reporting on my credit. It's been good to see that. So, but yes, so why are they on hold? Are you still working? No, they're on hold because of uh, the moratorium. Well, no, I know, I know. But are you still working? Yes, I am. So then, why do you need the hold? I was taking the break. And why do you need from... the break? I was taking advantage of the break. Uh, right. I mean, you, 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 you see where I'm going, season. right? Yeah. <laughs> you absolutely don't need this break. You have a ton of debt. You are still working. Um, hopefully you've got some emergency fund. And so you are, you're trying to take advantage of something that's in place for people who've lost their job or had an decrease in their income. But if you now, from now until September, because that's how long you have, if you've got federally backed loans, if you, every penny that you pay now goes to reducing that principal. So let's say, I don't know how much you're making, but from now until September, let's say if you just cut everything because you're not going anywhere, you're not going on a vacation, let's say you can manage a thousand a month. Now you, buddy, September, you've knocked off about $9,000, right? That's worth it. You absolutely should be paying extra on those. You should not be taking that payment pause right now. And you've got to do this now because you've got to put yourself in the position to say, I need to get rid of this debt. And I get it. You started out, you wanted to pause, you got on payment, um, income based for payment because you were trying to get your footing. You've got your footing now. And, and who knows what's going to happen with loan forgiveness, but even if there is loan forgiveness, it's still only going to put a minor dent in your debt. So I'm going to need you to make those extra payments starting next month, which really this month. 
Natasha, thank you for calling in. Uh, so many people, again, trying to figure out how they're going to manage this. Natasha uh, made the comment that, uh, you know, the system is broken, uh, Michelle. And I think that's a sentiment that a lot of people feel in terms of the fact that higher education, it costs so much money and people do want to, um, you know, get a degree and, and have a life that they've always dreamed of. But that's the challenge, right? It's trying, to, trying to figure out the decisions that we're making and what's the best way to, to start to pay down this debt if they're able to. You know, I like to look at it. The system is broken, but also people's decision making process is not there. And so, yes, college costs too much. We have basically blanket the system with saying you got to go to college no matter what except we didn't explain what that no matter what meant for a lot of families down the road and so yes in that sense this young person Natasha and others are faced with you know take out these loans so you can get a college education so you can get a better life but they don't talk about what the consequences of that because the colleges you know they got to put people in the seats but then on the other hand, we have parents and guardians who are not, and even school officials who are not uh, giving children or these young people the right information about this choice. It is a hard sell when I tell parents to send their kids to community college because, you know, right about now or in a couple months, people will be getting the letters of where they went to school and people are all asking, so where's your kid going? Really what they're trying to figure out is, did your kid get into a good quote unquote school? Um, and that increases the pressure both on parents and students to get into better and better schools that cost more. Um, and we've got to stop that. You know, you, it is true that you earn more in many professions if you have a college degree, but it, you don't have to go to a school that you can't afford. You know, I, you know, go locally, commute. I mean, if you don't have the money, your parents don't have the money, you can't have that idyllic college experience of being on campus and roaming and sitting on the grass looking at the sky. You just can't. You know, and and maybe there's a time where people can do that. But if you don't have the money, you just can't do it, folks. It's just going to put this weight on you and your parents for decades. And I don't want that for you. You can still have a decent middle income life with going to your state school, going to community college for two years, transferring to the four-year university, you can still have a great life. And we got to stop this whole idea that somehow community college is like the, the 13th grade. You know, we denigrate community colleges, yet community colleges in our communities are training people for positions. They're giving them the basics that they need to continue their college education. And there's nothing wrong with sending your kid to community college. Mm. Michelle, we're going to be talking about that on Where We Live later this week. Uh, Peter is calling in from South Windsor. Peter, I have a feeling you agree with what Michelle just shared. Uh, very much, yeah. Uh, thank you for, for uh, taking my call. Um, I, uh, there's a study out of Georgetown University Center on Education and the Workforce that shows middle-skilled jobs can be obtained with associate's degrees and certificates. And one factor I've been thinking about for a long time is debt forgiveness for student loans is fine, but won't help if we continue to push the four-year degree or nothing um, idea. So 
uh, you know, I'd love to hear the the response. Um, you know, take it off air, but uh, you know, can we or should we really try to push that paradigm shift to? You know, go for the associates, go for the certificates for those middle skill jobs, those good jobs, rather than four years or nothing. But you're you're in uh, debt. It's again, if we forgive it, but we keep pushing people in that direction, the debt's just going to pile up again. I'm mm-hmm. curious what what we all think about that. Thank Peter, you. thank you for your call. Uh, Michelle, uh, you know, just uh, related to what Peter was sharing and what you said, community college enrollment in Connecticut is down significantly in this pandemic that's being seen across uh, the country. Are you worried about uh, these programs uh, existing in the future because of the pandemic, because of the, the loss of resources and students uh, in these seats? Yeah, I'm definitely concerned about that. And part of the reason some of the enrollment is down is because, you know, you've got to have a computer, you've got to be able to have the internet bandwidth, and lots of students who who go to community college come from homes and communities where they don't have those kind of resources. And then also, you know, quite frankly, some people just online learning doesn't do it for them, right? They've got to be in class. They've got to have that contact. It's very difficult. Many parents are listening, understand, you know, they see their kids struggling, um, trying to learn at home. And so I understand why enrollment is down. And I totally agree with what Peter said, that there ought to be more jobs and um, criteria that allow people to have certificates and associate degrees. But there has been an inflation of jobs that require a college degree that don't necessarily need a college degree. I mean, uh, you know, I'm helping my my kids, you know, as they're looking for jobs as they finish college. And some of the positions I'm thinking, do you really need a four-year degree for this job? It's a good job, mind you, and it has good skills. And so I wonder if more employers are just putting that down to weed out people. But as a result, you weed out people who can do the job but don't necessarily have a college degree. Um, and, I, and I have to be, um, this is really, um, this is important to me because I, my, my oldest sister didn't get a college degree and she had a great job, a contracting job. And during the Great Recession, she lost that great contracting job. And she's had a very difficult time finding another job because they now, in those same positions that she held or held, they now require a college degree. She can still do the work. She was exceptional in that. But now they put that barrier in for her. She's in her 60s. What is she going to do? So she had to take jobs that paid less because of this escalation of this sort of arbitrary, you've got arbitrary that you've got to have this certain kind of degree or a, a degree. Our goal should be to make sure that we have people able to work and have the skills. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to go to a four-year university. My guest today here on Where We Live, Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for the Washington Post. She's written several books, a new one coming out this May, What to Do with Your Money When Crisis Hits, a survival guide. Now, coming up, we're going to talk more about student loan forgiveness. What could that mean for borrowers and taxpayers? You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're talking about student loan debt. Coming up in just a couple of minutes, we're going to focus on the debate about canceling or forgiving student loans. Uh, my guest today, Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for the Washington Post. I wanted to take a quick call. Russ from Manchester, are you still there? Yes, I am. Russ, go ahead. Oh, hi there. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, I, I love what your, your guest from the Washington Post is saying. I, I agree with about 95% of what she says. And in fact, what she's saying is, is how I lived uh, when I went to college. Uh, my parents, I came from a family of five. My parents couldn't afford to put all of us through college. I told them I'm going to put myself through college, and, and I struggled. And I was one of those macaroni and cheese and hot dog eating college students working multiple jobs. Uh, I don't believe that you know kids have to put themselves in debt. I think it's a choice, and I think it's, it's a poor choice if they think they need to go to a, an Ivy League. And I think that certainly going to uh, a uh, community college is an excellent idea for the first two years. And, and save your money and spend it for something like grad school where, yeah, certainly going to a top, you know, Ivy League law school is, is going to give you more connections. But as an undergraduate, I think a lot of people make the mistake of going to the dream school as opposed to getting the one that will get the job done for them. Uh, well, thank Thank you, Russ, for, for sharing your comments uh, with us here on Where We Live. You can join us, too, 888-720-WMPR. And again, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. Now, some Democrats in Congress have asked President Biden to support a program that would forgive $50,000 in federal student loan debt. Now, loan forgiveness was one of Biden's campaign promises, but he proposed smaller loan forgiveness, about $10,000. Now, coming up later, we'll talk about whether he could forgive student debt using an executive order versus working with Congress. Now, we have an education secretary or a commissioner in our state, uh, Dr. Miguel Cardona, who is President Biden's nominee to lead the U.S. Department of Education. He was on Where We Live the other week, and he told us student debt relief would be a priority for him. You know, again, when we talk about data, we have to assess the damage that it's, it's causing on these groups of students and make sure that we're targeting the support to those students that need it the most. Students who might have looked at college as an opportunity and now over the last 10 months thought that because of the pandemic, they can no longer pursue that. So those are the students that we want to re-engage and provide support for to make sure that they have the access to, to the American dream that, you know, that, that we all have. Uh, Michelle, I'll start with you. So Dr. Cardona shared with us that he believes relief should be targeted for those who need it the most. Uh, tell me about your, your feelings on this conversation about canceling student debt. I do. I agree that it should be more targeted with the caveat that if they can't truly do that, that I'm okay if some people get relief that don't need it, if it means that the larger group who need it will get it. Because oftentimes when we create these carve outs, we, we do it so in a way that the relief really doesn't still get to the people who need it. But there are people who are working who can pay their student loans off and should. Uh, and um, listen, because this is not just a free bill. I mean, someone is going to have to pay for this student loan forgiveness, and that someone is the American taxpayers. But on the other hand, you know, let's not 
think so much about this and we, you know, we've been thinking about it and thinking about it that we have no relief. Um, there are people who are struggling and this is particularly true for um, uh, minorities. They've got the debt, but no degree. They got through and they couldn't finish because they couldn't have, they didn't have, they ran out of money or they had family issues. Um, and so I think we do need to give some relief to people. And I know it's going to hurt some people's sensibilities because they're thinking about the federal deficit as I am. I am a very person who, who preaches personal responsibility. You heard me earlier fussing at that one young girl to pay her. Why are you paying a hundred dollars a month when you actually can pay more? However, right now we need to be, um, very um sorry about that <laughs> we need to be very empathetic to people who need student loan relief i wanted to bring another perspective into the conversation about loan forgiveness on zoom with us beth acres a resident fellow at the american enterprise institute it's a think tank based in washington dc beth welcome to the show thanks so much for having me this morning a lot of our listeners interested in what the Biden administration will do related to loan forgiveness. Do you think loan forgiveness is a good idea? Maybe a smaller amount versus what Senators Warren and Schumer have proposed $50,000 of student loan debt canceled? My feeling is that we do need something to happen. We need relief for the many people who are struggling out here. But the problem is that that $50,000 package that Schumer and Warren are pushing is just the wrong solution. It's largely because of what you've already mentioned, that a lot of people who take on a lot of debt are actually the highest earners in our economy. These are people who have graduate and professional degrees. And while they have a lot of debt, it's often affordable to them because they have very high earnings. And so in, in the sense of wanting to target, this really fails that test. What I like to say is that we would do much better just improving the system that we already have in place. And Michelle talked about this earlier. Anybody with a federal student loan today is eligible to make payments, reduce payments if needed, on an income-based repayment program that reduces their monthly payment to an amount that's affordable based on how much they're earning. And then ultimately the debt would be forgiven after 20, 25 years, or even sooner if you work in a nonprofit or public sector. We could do a lot by making that program more generous and doing away with these sort of quick soundbite solutions that sound really good, but um, you know are, are really wildly inefficient, uh, add to the, the deficit more than necessary, um, and really just create another problem for the coming years when, when people are going to be bound to want to be borrowing more because they anticipate having their loans forgiven in the future. Now, I believe you've written in the Wall Street Journal an op-ed that maybe canceling $5,000 in student loan debt, that could help these low-income households that um, are most impacted? Michelle raised this too, that, that a lot of the people that we should be really concerned about with student debt are the ones who started college and didn't finish. You would think that people with the largest balances would be in the most trouble. But statistically, when we look at the data on this, the ones who are most likely to default are people who have less than $5,000 in debt. And that's surprising to most people. The reason for that is that if you start college, take out a couple thousand dollars in, in loans to pay for a semester or two, but then don't get a degree, you don't get that earnings bump that comes with college completion that enables you to have uh, 
the ability to pay back debt affordably. So a forgiveness program of $5,000, like I proposed, was in part a, a, a political compromise and that I think if we were to do this, it would alleviate the burden on those who are struggling the most in the very immediate term. And then we could push policymakers to reform the income-based repayment system that we already have in place to work much better, even if we want to make it more generous. Uh, Michelle Singletary, what's your response to some of Beth's points? I, you know, I agree with a lot of what she said. Um, I think that they can make a lot of improvements to the um, IBI's programs. For example, you know, eliminating uh, the tax um, liability at the end of the loan forgiveness, for example, or um, making sure that the people, you know, really who can afford more can pay more per or widen the, um, you know, right now it's based on, you know, how much disposable you have, you know, increase that so more people um, who qualify for it have less to pay every month, which would free up their money, you know, to save and put in money in retirement and take care of their kids and maybe even save for their kids to go to college. Um, my only concern is that in these compromises, let's make sure that we really do get to the people. I'm not sure that 5,000 is gonna be enough, but I do agree that we need to look at who needs it the most. And I'm just gonna say this and be as generous as possible right now, um, because many of these people have lost their job. They were already struggling before. And right now is the time to be the most um, generous and helping people with a leg up doing an economy for them that has been devastated. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, as we talk about student loan debt in this country, including proposals to forgive some of that uh, student loan debt. I just wanted to bring up a point that Miriam tweeted to us, uh, Michelle and Beth, that uh, this proposed relief leaves out loans held by private companies or private loans. And she feels like the people that are holding on to these private loans are left out of this conversation. What can be done to help them? Beth, I'll start with you. Well, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot. So we have these generous protections for people who borrow from the federal lending program. Uh, private student loans just simply don't have that. And in some way, they're, they operate like credit card debt. And so maybe Michelle has some practical tips on how someone can manage that in their, in their personal balance sheet. But through policy and, and programs, there's not a lot they can do right now. Yeah. Michelle? Yeah, she's absolutely right. I mean, these are private loans. So that would be saying, let's just forgive everybody who had credit card debt. That's just, first of all, it's just not going to happen. Um, and I would say that right now, if you've got a mix of private and federal, do not consolidate them together into a private loan because you do lose those federal protections. So if you've been thinking about that, just because of the ease, or maybe you think you can get a lower uh, credit, um, I mean, uh, interest rate, I would say don't do that because we, because everything is on the table now, we're not sure what's going to happen. You may lose some loan forgiveness that may be on the table later. So if you've got federal back and private do not pull them together into one private um, so that you can keep some of those protections. Um, and the I don't know if this is like good news, but the majority of debt still is federally backed. So it would still hit a lot of people, whatever they decide to do. 
You can join our conversation again. We'll take some calls in just a couple of minutes, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Shelley tweeted, no one's talking about the criminal predatory lending aspect of this, that the college has a financial incentive in getting students to sign for these loans. Where else can a minor sign for an unsecured loan for ten thousands, tens of thousands of dollars? This is a crime. Uh, Beth Akers, I wonder if you could respond uh, to Shelley. Yeah, that's a great comment and one that I hear quite frequently. I think it's really important to remember that, you know, when we talk about predatory actors, we often think of somebody in the private sector who's this evil company trying to make lots of money. In this case, the situation that we are in is one that we design for ourselves through policy. The 90% of the debt that exists in the economy is federal student loans, which means the underwriting was our, our government's decision that we are going to give those loans to people and not assess whether or not it's necessarily affordable to them. So the bad news is that this is a problem we created ourselves. The good news is that if we don't like how this is going, our policymakers can change it. Rebecca's calling in from Weathersfield. Rebecca, you're on the show. Hi. Years ago, I was in default. Totally my fault. I was just terrible at managing money. And then when I dug myself out of the hole and my my account was current, I was required to pay 18% of it to be moved from the default list to the currently good list. If I'd had that 18%, I would have put it into the loan. So it took me a long time to make up for that just to get current when I was current, just to be moved from one list to another, 18% of the outstanding balance. Wow, that's frustrating. Uh, Michelle, uh, this is something that a lot of people deal with when they go into delinquency or default. Yeah, they do. I mean, it's a hard hill to climb when you uh, once you defaulted on your student loan. It's possible, but it's a it's a steep hill. And so, uh, you know, try not to do that before you get into fault. I'd rather be, you just put it in forbearance if you had a job loss or something, even though the interest is going to increase so that it'll become easier once you get out to get back on an income based repayment plan, because you can't get on an income based repayment plan if you're in default. You've got to cure that default. Um, so I, you know, I definitely sympathize. And and I think, um, you know, what Shelly was saying is that there's a lot of uh, people have got, got a lot of information about how to handle these loans. And again, we're giving loans to people in their, you know, starting years of life, 18, 19, 20, and 21. And I know they think they know everything because trust me, I have kids in their 20s and they think they know everything, but they don't. And that's where I have been hammering this whole show. And if you are a parent or a guardian or, or a parental influence of a young adult, you've got to help them make better decisions. I am a broken record in my own home and everybody I know. I will, you know, I'm going to beat this drum and tell you, listen, um, do not let these young people make these kind of decisions on their own and give them the ultimate veto. Um, you need to take control. And you've heard these people. Now, you know, there's some people who say, well, you know, the average debt is only 30, so people are handling it. Um, but I know from pe- people's personal budget that even if it's just a couple hundred dollars a month, that can prevent people from doing the things that they can to create financial security for themselves. Because if they're paying three or 400 a month, even though it might be okay for their budget, that's three, three or $400 they're not putting towards their retirement. They're not putting towards their emergency fund or their life happens fund. Um, 
and they still then still try to do the things that we do, like buy a home, you know, have kids. And I know, God, if I tell people not to have kids, but all of that adds to the cost of living while you are carrying this burden of student loan debt. Uh, and so we we definitely got to get the message to young people that you please stop taking on so much of this debt. And also for graduate uh, uh, education as well. We haven't really, really talked about that. So many people getting advanced degrees and that degree does not necessarily increase their income. Um, I have talked plenty of people out of going to graduate school because the one question I ask is, how do you know this is actually going to increase your income? Well, the school told me or someone told me, did you actually talk to someone in a position that you want based on this degree and ask them, did they need that master's? I have a master's uh, in business. My husband has an MBA. Didn't help us increase our salary one teeny little bit. Uh, before we head to break, I want to just ask Beth Akers, again, a lot of attention on loan forgiveness and what the Biden administration will do, uh, what Congress will do, if anything. You have another uh, thing that you've written about that um, President Biden has proposed doubling Pell Grants under the existing eligibility rules. But you're thinking in a way that maybe having more of this money available to freshmen could help them early on in their college education versus uh, later on. And so if they're if they have to pause their education, they're not saddled with so much debt? Yeah, so right now we have a grant program called the Pell Grant Program that gives college students a little money each semester that they're enrolled. And that's great. Um, but what I'd recommend is that as we think about expanding the pot of money that exists in that program, I'd love to see more of it go to people in their first few semesters of enrollment. And the reason is simple. Coming back to that same thing before, the people who get in the most trouble are the ones who start college but don't finish. It would make it easier, read cheaper for people to try college, um, but then not have to walk away saddled with debt. I think that would alleviate a lot of the challenges that we're having with student loan payment right now. So basically, um, I'd like to see the money that we're going to spend going to early enrolled students. Beth Akers, again, is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. That's a think tank based in D.C. Beth, thank you for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, Michelle Singletary stays with us. We're going to try to answer some more of your calls uh, and find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. With me today on Zoom, Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for The Washington Post. Uh, Helena is calling in from North Brantford. Helena, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Go ahead. Hi. Um, uh, my husband and I are the proud parents of a UConn graduate, not at the state school, but we're also the not-so-proud holders of a Parent PLUS loan. And um, we know that... Well, it's only under my husband's name, fortunately, but we know that if he were to die, it would be forgiven. But we're wondering, we're older parents, is there any other way to get a Parent PLUS loan forgiven other than dying? Michelle? Wow. So how much do you have? How much does your husband did he take out? Oh, we're, we're, I'm sorry, we're short on time. And so she's on pause, but. Um, oh, okay. So um, I hate to tell you that, um, no, um, you've you got to pay them the, the loan. Uh, Vicki's calling in. Vicki, what's your question or comment? My comment is this, is that 
I've heard everything that was going on because I listened to the program, and it's all been good, pros and cons. But the one thing I haven't heard of is anybody fixing or saying how can they fix when the people go into, um, I think it's forbearance, and then that um, interest be added on to the balance. It is because that's where it really grows at. And that's where the American people and all the students get in trouble at when they have to go into forbearance and all of that interest get tacked onto the balance. So right there, that needs to be fixed on how can that stop from happening? Michelle. Well, we actually did talk quite a bit about that. Remember earlier in the conversation, I was fussing at someone who still had her loans on pause. So it, it rather than saying fix it because that's the system, I, we have to encourage people when they don't need to go into forbearance, don't. If you're starting out, and I get it, you need a little breathing room, but once you get past that little breathing room, we're talking a couple years, then you need to take your loans out of forbearance and start paying on them. I have met so many people who just, they sort of set it and forget it. And and they want that extra money to live the life that they want. And they don't address their student loans. And you got to take it out. And as again, parental influences or parents, you ask your kids, are your loans still in forbearance? You need to take them out. Uh, we're just about out of time, Michelle Singletary. Someone was wondering if you can clarify quickly what's going on with the uh, public service for 10 years for loan forgiveness. Is that a program that's been helping a lot of people? I think there were some delays in that uh, in the couple, last couple of years. Yes, what happened was lots of people weren't following what they needed to do or uh, the loan services weren't giving them the right information. So people who thought they were in the program weren't actually. Um, So that's what was happening. So people actually didn't get it or they figured they thought they were at the 10 year mark and they weren't. Um, And so now if you're in that program, you got to be sure you're in an income based repayment plan. You have a direct student loan from the federal government. There's all things you have to do. You have to make sure that your employer is a qualified employer. And if all of those boxes are ticked off, then you can get that loan forgiveness after um, Mm. 120 on time payments, which is basically 10 years of on time payments. We'll have to leave it there. Michelle Singletary, personal finance columnist for the Washington Post. We'd love to have you back in May when that new book comes out. We need it. <laughs> oh, I would love to come back. You know, if people will have me, you know, I was fussing the whole show. So. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we would love to have you back. Michelle Singletary again. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Later this week, we're going to talk more about higher education, the cost, trades, programs, community colleges. We hope you're with us this week.